Hello, and welcome to the story of Singapore, episode 6, Here Come the Brits. Last episode, we traced the history of Southeast Asia from where we had previously left off, in the 1400s, when the Malacca Sultanate was emerging as a premier power in the Malay archipelago. However, improvements in shipbuilding and navigation, among many other reasons, brought other powers from distant lands to the archipelago. In the 1500s, the Malacca Sultanate was deposed by the Portuguese, who, in turn, was dislodged from the city by the Dutch in the 1600s. By the time the 1700s rolled around, the Dutch controlled most of Indonesia and the city of Malacca, while the English, or should I say the British, controlled the inconsequential colony of Ben Kulin. The Dutch and British competed over trade in the region and from time to time warred with each other before making peace and then went right back to warring again before making peace yet again. European politics were complicated. Over time, more colonies were established in the region by both powers, but they were generally few and far between, with little effect on the balance of power. That all changed as the 1800s approached. Continental Europe became embroiled in the French Revolutionary Wars in the late 1700s and the subsequent Napoleonic Wars in the early 1800s. The British society, being on its own separate island, was able to evade the violent and tumultuous politics of the mainland. However, the conflicts in Europe spilled out into other parts of the world. In Southeast Asia, the British East India Company invaded and annexed the Dutch-owned Spice Islands in 1810. Then, at the suggestion of one particular British official, the company also attacked and successfully captured a colony of Batavia and the entire island of Java in 1811. That British official was Thomas Stamford Bingley Raffles, and he is about to play a most crucial role in our story. But we will get to him in just a bit. Meanwhile, Britain was the first nation in the world to begin its industrialization process, which accelerated its production and manufacturing capabilities far beyond its competitors. Factor in its global maritime commerce, tax revenues and supply of raw materials from its overseas colonies, as well as the fact that it was sitting on a giant deposit of coal that powered its engines, and we start to see why British profits were flying off the charts. Monies that came in were reinvested into the military, and since the British Empire was primarily a sea power, not so much a land power, it expanded its naval capabilities. Fortunately for the British, naval power just so happened to be the key to colonial expansion and conquest beyond Europe. Now, these are just scratching the surface, and there were many other reasons why the British Empire emerged 
as the preeminent colonial power that it was in the 1800s. But it would take us at least another podcast altogether to investigate and discuss. Also, did I mention that European politics were complicated? In any case, by 1815, the British Empire entered what historians would define as Pax Britannica, Latin for British peace. In the next 100 years, more than 26 million square kilometers, or 10 million square miles, would be added into its territory, and more than 400 million people would be under British administration. It would remain as the global hegemon until the First World War upended its golden age and fractured its grip on power. For now, the British Empire was at the top of the leaderboard and the situation in Southeast Asia was about to take a turn and in no small part because of one Thomas Stamford Bingley Raffles. Born in 1781, Raffles came from a family that faced financial hardship, but they were well-connected and fortunate enough to put him into a private boarding school until the boy turned 14. By contrast, most children of that period would have left school at the age of 11 or even younger to start working. In 1795, Raffles secured a highly coveted clerkship with the British East India Company. He would work in London for about 10 years before he was posted to British Malaya as the Assistant Secretary of the new Governor of Penang. There, Raffles impressed and earned favour with the Governor-General of India. When the British seized the Indonesian island of Java in 1811, the Governor-General appointed him as the new Lieutenant Governor of the defeated Dutch East India Company to manage their new territorial holdings. During his tenure in Java, Raffles conducted several military campaigns to subjugate local princes and quell loyalty issues, which, for the most part, quickly brought peace and stability to the region, but they also fostered deep enmity within the Javanese population against Europeans because of the ensuing looting and pillaging by the British. Apart from administration, Raffles also cultivated a keen interest in natural history and local cultures. So, he collected various zoological and botanical specimens, rare cultural artifacts, as well as palace archives and one-of-a-kind documents with the intent of studying and writing about them later. He would remain in office until the British signed a treaty with the Dutch in 1814, giving most of the occupied territories in Java back to the Dutch. Wait, what? Give it back? Just like that? Well, it is a long story. Back in 1688, the reigning king of England and Scotland was overthrown by his daughter and her Dutch husband with the support of dissidents within the English and Scottish parliaments. The event, dubbed as the Glorious Revolution, united both crowns and turned the English and the Dutch into allies. However, as the 1700s progressed, the Dutch Empire 
was on the decline and became increasingly vulnerable to French influence. By the time of the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars from 1793 to 1815, French sympathizers had overtaken its government, banished the ruling Dutch monarch, and turned the nation into a client state of France. Consequently, the British, being on the opposing side of the war, attacked Dutch colonies in Indonesia. When the exiled king returned to his throne in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars, the British Empire ceded the former Dutch territories as a gesture of good faith on the one part, and on the other part, in exchange for official confirmation of British possession of more vital colonies in Africa and South America. This is just a short version of that story. Oh, and have I mentioned that European politics were complicated already? In March 1818, Raffles was reassigned as the Lieutenant Governor of Ben Kulin. As prestigious as the title might have sounded, Ben Kulin had essentially become a colonial backwater. While Raffles immediately set about reforms to redevelop the settlement, it became quite clear that he was slated for obsolescence. The colony of Ben Kulin was too far from main trading routes to be profitable. Fueled by the hot and wet climate, disease was rampant. It was a colonial disappointment that was burning a huge hole in the company's finances. Yet, the British East India Company could not abandon the colony because it was of strategic importance to maintain some British presence in a lucrative trading region dominated by the Dutch. Given his lackluster financial performance during his administration of Java, the company directors probably placed Raffles in Ben Kulin because they thought this was where he could do the least harm. To put it bluntly, Ben Kulin was the company's dumping ground for ineffective or irrelevant staffers. And in all likelihood, Raffles knew that as well. Now, Raffles had been a strong advocate for a British power base to challenge Dutch positions in the Malay archipelago before they could reconsolidate their authority and regain full control. Currently, the few colonies that the British had were too far out of position for company trading ships travelling through the Strait of Malacca between British India and China to reach and stop over. Most times, these ships had no choice but to resupply and trade at Dutch ports while paying the heavy taxes levied on them. Establishing a new trade settlement closer to the maritime trading choke point in the Strait of Malacca would secure British trade in the region. So, later that same year, Raffles pitched the idea to his immediate superior, the new Governor-General of India, Lord Hastings. To which, Lord Hastings granted Raffles limited jurisdiction on the matter and instructed Raffles to avoid antagonizing the Dutch at all costs. However, the Dutch had already snatched up most of the good locations and had long established diplomatic ties with native rulers who could deny the British from setting up a new base in their territories. This was a tall order, 
and one that Raffles would conveniently overlook. Joining Raffles in his quest on the 19th of January, 1819, was a longtime associate named William Farquhar, whose years of administrative and diplomatic experience in the archipelago and marriage to a Malay woman gave crucial insights into the politics of the region. The expeditionary party shortlisted a few locations. Farquhar pushed for the Great Karaman, one of the islands in Indonesia's Riau Islands province today. However, when they visited the site, they found that it had limited freshwater facilities and thus unsustainable for a trading settlement. Instead, another location was suggested, about 37 kilometers northeast of the island. That location was Singapore. On the 29th of January, 1819, the party arrived on the shores of Singapore. Before his visit to Singapore, Raffles had already acquainted himself with ancient Singapore as it was romanticized in the Malay annals. He knew Singapore had the potential to generate a lot of publicity among the locals in the Malay archipelago and attract merchants and laborers over, which would be imperative for the early years of growth for the settlement. But the ultimate question remains, is Singapore a viable location for the new British colony? A survey of the island reviewed several strategic advantages. Firstly, Singapore was situated on the southern tip of the Malaysian Peninsula, just beside the busy trade routes that passed through the Strait of Malacca. It also had a natural deep water harbour, which could allow larger and heavier ships to anchor in the port without the need for smaller vessels to transfer cargo and thus saved a lot of time. And time is money. Further inland were forests that could provide timber to repair ships as well as reservoirs and rivers that provided fresh water to sustain a population. Most importantly, there was zero Dutch presence in the vicinity. If the idea of reviving an ancient port sounded attractive to him before, then all these geographical benefits would have sealed the deal for him. There was just one problem. Singapore was nominally ruled by the Johor Riau Sultanate, which, if you remember from the last episode, had been sharing a close diplomatic relationship with the Dutch for at least a century. There was no way the Sultan would grant approval to the British to establish a colony in Singapore. Unless... Well, as it turns out, the Johor Riau Sultanate was facing political troubles on the home front. Traditionally, the Temengkong was a high-ranking Malay noble, the equivalent of a minister for justice or defense. And normally, a Temengkong would serve in the Sultan's court to oversee his security detail as well as manage the state police and military. However, the current Temengkong Abdul Rahman was no longer based in the Sultan's court in Riau. His political authority had been undermined by the Bugis community, an ethnic group that held significant influence over the incumbent Sultan. 
frustrated, Temenggong Abdul Rahman had since relocated to Singapore, where he could run his own operations and enjoy a degree of autonomy over his subjects. To make matters worse, the Johor Riau Sultanate was undergoing a succession crisis too. The previous Sultan had died in 1812 without a son born of royal mothers and without formally naming an heir. He had two sons born of commoner mothers, however, and it was customary for the eldest surviving son to inherit the throne. But the older son, Hussein Shah, was absent at the time of his death because he was in Pahang for his matrimonial ceremony. The Bugis, on the other hand, favoured the younger son, also named Abdul Rahman, and pushed for his succession. But the late Sultan's royal wife objected to his coronation. All parties were locked in a political stalemate until Hussein Shah withdrew from the court and entered a self-imposed exile, leaving Abdul Rahman to become the de facto Sultan. Now, it was time for the British to make their next move. This was a delicate issue to tackle because the British had previously signed a trade treaty with Abdul Rahman and thereby acknowledged him as the new Sultan. However, with the Dutch re-exerting their influence over the Johor Riau Sultanate, the chance of success was slim. The British decided on a two-pronged approach. Farquhar would be sent to the court of the Johor Riau Sultanate to seek official permission to establish a trading post in Singapore. Behind closed doors, however, they colluded with the Temenkong to smuggle Hussein Shah to Singapore. As expected, Plan A did not work. Sultan Abdul Rahman rejected Farquhar's request. So, they proceeded with Plan B. Raffles offered to recognize Hussein Shah as the rightful Sultan, along with a yearly stipend for his and the Temenggong's troubles. On the 6th of February, 1819, Raffles signed a treaty with Sultan Hussein and Temenggong Abdul Rahman, granting the British East India Company the right to lease only a small plot of land in Singapore for the purpose of establishing a trading post. For their contributions, the Sultan and the Temenggong were each granted an annual fee of 5000 and 3000 Spanish dollars respectively, which were pretty hefty amounts for their time. Why Spanish dollars, you might ask? Well, Spanish coinage had earned a reputation for its impeccable consistency in silver content and milling standards, which meant that the coins could not be easily altered without damaging its physical characteristics and thereby reduce its actual value. As a result, it was recognized as the most trustworthy coin and was widely circulated by colonists across the world. Anyway, the signing of this agreement officially marked the founding of modern Singapore. Shortly after, Raffles appointed Farquhar as the resident of Singapore, and then he packed his bags and left the very next day. Uh, that was erupt. We will return on the 29th of November 
and in the next episode, both the British and Dutch governments would be equally alarmed by what Stamford Raffles had done and as they scrambled to defuse the ticking bomb, William Farquhar would face the unenviable task of transforming a patch of land into one of the most lucrative trading settlements for the British Empire with little to nothing. <laughs>